Is there ever a time when crying out to God in hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain would be an untimely word? Why this two-week series on crying out to God in the Lament Psalms? Number one, to nurture lament and praise among God's people at this hour of history. And number two, to correct the widespread loss of lament as a normal, holistic, healthy practice of life in covenant relationship with God. So this is part one, and next week we'll do part two. And I draw your attention to this book that was written, published in 2017. And from our perspective, the title of this book is The Tanakh is Dying. So we need to address the harmful loss of the practice of lament in the context of the harmful loss of the Tanakh. And what Brent meant by this is that fewer and fewer people are taking the time to make sure they know the content of the Tanakh from Genesis to its end in Hebrew, that is Chronicles. That's, that's getting lost. That's getting lost. There's a loss. And if we are losing the Tanakh, or if we have lost the Tanakh, then we have a harmful loss of the book of Psalms. And I'm talking about the book of Psalms in its entirety, including the lament Psalms. And this is where we speak to the harmful loss of the practice of lament. Strawn citing Sibley Towner asserts that in the 21st century, singing about sin and suffering sounds like an oxymoron as if we should only sing praise. And when we address sin and suffering, we shouldn't sing about it. Rightly calls that a problem if we think that's an oxymoron, that these things don't belong together, especially in the communal context of a congregation. And in consumer culture, he says, somber doesn't sell. And so he concludes that we prefer to sin and repent, lament and die in silent privacy. And in part, this book attributes the harmful loss of the practice of lament to a culture obsessed with unrealistic and superficial happiness. And I just have to say how deeply moved I am with the number of times that our own Eric Chabot puts a post up on Facebook that has to do with this obsession with unrealistic and superficial happiness to what? Call us to something greater. And in this book, he argues that this is marketed to us every day in our consumer culture by happyologists. Imagine he uses this term. Yeah. And so if we continue in that stream, we run the risk of only putting up praise music that's disconnected from where we are in the hardship, trouble, trouble, pain, and suffering of our actual lives. And so Brent Strawn, as a part of this book, really calls us to the restoration of the entire book of Psalms so that we do recover from this harmful loss of the practice of lament. What is the sermon goal or takeaway this morning, this week? Lifelong learning that leads to the permanent, regular engagement of the Psalms and the healthy, holistic practice of lament on the way to praise. It is an accurate statement to say that the road to praise is paved with lament, and we'll see that the structure of the Psalms bears this out. A sermon challenge, 
Today, try reading the Psalms in 30 days, in just about 30 days, and engage God in them, noting which Psalms seem to be lament Psalms. And then write your own lament Psalm. Or if you have nothing to lament, and if that's true, please call the office and tell us who you are. You will pick up the lion's share of praying for everyone else. Then write your own praise psalm. But use the Psalms to do this. And many of us use this U version, and they have one plan on the Psalms that, oddly enough, lasts 31 days. And if you think about it, the only reason why it's not 30 days is they just are Westerners that thought Psalm 119 was too big for us in a single day. So there's a beautiful plan. I've done it once through. It's easy to do. You can do it whenever it's best convenient for you. I did it late at night just before I slept after prayer with Marguerite, and you get a better sleep. First things first, we have some healthy cautions. Caution number one from a global historical analysis is a caution regarding the U.S. cultural tendency to expect a hardship-free, trouble-free, suffering-free, and pain-free life. Such expectations leave us U.S. people some of the most ill-equipped people to handle hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain when it comes to our lives, like it does to the daily lives of all the people in the two-thirds world. And I'm sorry to report as a former pharmaceutical scientist that since the mid-1990s, mental health professionals began to question whether or not the U.S. had crossed a line and had begun to medicate the human condition. Those who are truly in the way of the Lord, straight out of Genesis 18, 19, who are in the kingdom of God, do not share the U.S. expectations for a hardship-free, trouble-free, suffering-free, and pain-free life. We not only don't share those expectations, we reject all false forms of the good news, including the famous health and wealth gospel that we're responsible for exporting to the rest of the world. Caution number two comes from Dan Allender, who has done work with a famous biblical scholar of the Tanakh and is the person that Joel Willits has gotten credentialed under uh, to, for him, for Joel, to counsel persons who were sexually abused when they were young. Caution number two from Dan is a caution regarding naivete about holistic mental health. And I left at the bottom of the slide, you can go find this on Google, why desiring God's tweet about mental health is so wrong. When you read that little essay by Dan, it critiques two things. The thought that praying or reading the Bible more will automatically result in no mental health problems. And number two, the use of simplistic memes to address mental health such as, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. We strongly recommend crying out to God in the healthy, holistic practice of lament because it is very beneficial. But we must be very careful not to make light of our own or someone else's clinical mental health problem that may require medication. When Dan finishes this little essay, he says this, Gaze on God 
and be prepared for a drink much stronger than lemonade. Or any aphorism, some convenient statement that promises tidy resolve to our mental health. He wasn't saying don't have a robust life of prayer. Don't have a robust life of reading God's word. He was saying don't think that just you can just read a few more passages and you'll just skip through life in all of its hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain. Caution number three is from U.S. Cultural and Medical Science, and it's a caution regarding substitutes for lament. If we don't take the time to really pour out our heart to God in hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, we will likely turn to, I'm glad some of you are laughing, stressed as desserts spelled backwards. And let me just suggest that that's only true in spelling. You will not get de-stressed by seven pieces of chocolate cake or a whole box of those Krispy Kreme donuts. Hence, caution number four is from Josiah Kielsen. He wrote an article called Comparing Suffering, Whose Worst is the Worst? So this is a caution regarding comparing hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain. He says the answer to the question of whose worst is the worst is one that rejects the question itself. In a world where all experience suffering and pain on some level, we do no one any benefit by belittling what they undergo because it seems to pale in comparison to something much sadder. There exists no sound or absolute metric to compare pain, suffering, or difficulties to one another. In the mini course on this topic, I chose to use this incredible decibel scale to make a point. And that is, first of all, what anyone could be going through in this area of hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain could range everywhere from faint to extremely painful, which would be the high red 140 at the end of this decibel scale. But also, we must ask always the important question, do we have enough information to know what another person is going through in order to know how to respond? Never forget this. What someone is going through could be totally random. Bad things happen to all people, whether they're God's people or not. Sickness happens to all people, whether they're God's people or not. Some get healed, some do not. And what somebody's going through might be totally God's doing. And you don't want to undo that. Remember me losing my colon to disease? Totally God's doing. And it could be also totally due to our own, to our own doing. Because sometimes we are the makers of our own demise. So we have to be extremely sensitive in understanding our own and other people's hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, and know what to do in that instance. And it could range everything from silence and just being with the person to offering counsel. And we're going to bear this out in real life situations in a moment. Caution number five is from Sandra Newman, who wrote The Lost Art of the Manly Weep. It's a caution regarding the U.S. cultural tendency of men not to lament and to reduce lament to a characteristic of women. Now, because we're in the Western world, I have to say, I'm not calling for every man to suddenly be weepy. Yes? Henry, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Jeff. It's not that. 
We're not calling for hyper-emotionalism. We're calling for whether you're men or women to have real crying out to God. And I want to show us four examples now. One, ancient from the Bible. Two, from the 21st century. One, ancient from the Bible to close. She closes her essay by saying it's time to open the floodgates. Time for men to give up emulating the stone-faced heroes of action movies and be more like the emotive heroes of Homer. She should have said the Tanakh. <laughs> like the weeping kings, holy ones, and statesmen of thousands of years of human history. What about the state's women? Think of the women who cried out to God. And this is written by a woman. When misfortune strikes, let us all men and women join together and cry until our sleeves are drenched. As the Tanakh has it, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. The example of Jacob. Isn't it lovely we just came from Jacob? Jacob's son Joseph, unrighteously sold into slavery and missing from Jacob's life for how many years? Estimates range from something like 12 to two decades. Missing from his life. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes again. And your son is presumed dead, even though it's all a lie. But you have to live with the torture that you lost your son for as long as he did. Look what Jacob did. That's why we call it an example. So Jacob tore his clothes, still a Jewish tradition to this day, put sackcloth on, very uncomfortable, like burlap, and did what? Mourned. Mourning is loud public lament. Mourned for his son for many days. Then all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said what? Surely I will go down to Sheol in the morning, in morning, not a.m., in this state of loud public lament for my son. So his father wept for him. Yes? By saying this, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. He means I will mourn for the remainder of my life until I join him in the place of the dead. The example of Jacob, and you know because we just finished last week how his story turns out. Two 21st century examples, the example of Brian Peters. Brian Peters is a friend of mine. He's pretty much a world-famous harmonica player, a blues harpist, plays blues harmonica. He's right here in our city. And on January 28th, his daughter drove downtown, parked at the Scioto River, and disappeared, and she'd been missing ever since. I don't know how you use Facebook. Actually, I do, I peek. But usually, the last thing my wife and I do before we go to sleep is we pray together, and we grab each other from here to here to do it. And we have very serious prayer about everything that should be prayed for in order for us to get even one restful hour of sleep. And then we let go, and immediately I hear, and she's gone. And sometimes I turn and I go to sleep, but other times I feel compelled to check Facebook to see what's been said that day. And sometimes that leads to another prayer session. Yeah, let the hearer understand. But this night it was very late, and I went to check Facebook, and there he had posted a post saying that he had broke down in tears with the members of his band, Mill Street Blues, which is two others, also both my friends. And he said, I could not stop crying. And then he said, I owe everybody more than that, meaning he was embarrassed 
as a man to have cried at the loss of his daughter who's missing? And so I looked at the post and I prayed and I thought, what can I sensitively say here that might help him? And so I put in a comment on a comment. And to my shock, my private messaging in Facebook immediately lit up. And there was Brian. And he says, Henry, I'm very angry with God tonight. Where is she? Why wasn't God there with her to protect her? Where's Yeshua when you need him? And he went on and on. It was like Niagara Falls was hitting me in the middle of the night in bed. And I looked at that and I thought, how am I going to pour into Brian Peters, my friend? And there's a challenge to all of us. If we're not those who live the way of the Lord, who cry out to God and who get through hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, we are not going to be in a position to minister to people that need us. And I saw a needy man, and he was getting to that place where I regret the day I was born. And so I started to say a few things to him, and it became a long conversation in private messenger in Facebook. And at one point, he relented and said, you know what? I am to the place now where he said, I know God sent you to me tonight. I'm to the place where I could even accept if they find her dead, but find her. I said, pour it out, brother, pour it out. And then the thought came, what if she was murdered? And God gave me the wherewithal to say to him, listen, if she's like you and she relies on you, then even if she was murdered, God was with her through the murder. I'll prove it to you in the scripture. At the end of the night, he said to me, you really, you really saved me tonight. No, God really saved him tonight. A person walking in the way of the Lord saved him tonight. Yeshua the Messiah rescued him that night. And I was able to sleep that night. So the last thing God put on my mind was I remembered this song. It's from a psalm. And it just sings over and over again, I am with you. It's from that famous psalm. And it just says, lo, I am with you. And it's sung by a guy named Fred Hammond. And it's got this ominous uh, orchestral and slightly dissonant big music track behind it. And all you hear him saying, and it seems like it's coming from a reverb cloud a million miles away, I am with you. I am with you. And he holds it in a reverb that seems to last forever. And I put my earplugs in and I listened to it somewhere around midnight. And then I sent it to him. And he said to me, I cannot believe you Fred Hammond me. I didn't even know he knew Fred Hammond. I didn't even remember Fred Hammond before this. But he listened to that and he said, I hear you, Henry. I'm with you, Henry. I love you, Henry. I'm thankful for you, Henry, because my trust in God is here even though I am where I am. And I'm staying here. I love it. He's transparent. He's honest. Pray for him. Somebody called her Sandy Griffith. That's Andy Griffith. This is Sandy Griffin. This is their 43rd anniversary just this past October, and we lost her just yesterday. Did you pour into her before she died? Yeah, except for us. See, when she told us about her diagnosis, God revealed to us that she would be gone in a short period of time. So my cards to her only ministered in a way that helps us to understand how to have dying grace, because we're going to have to die sometime, and we need dying grace. And the last thing I wrote her was the, was the psalm that says, that God is our guide all the way to death. One of the most important passages here that ties to the 
Fred Hammond song is, I am with you. No matter hardship, suffering, trouble, pain, God is with us in it. God suffers with his people. We don't know this because we reject all four instead of having to go through it and crying out to God and realize he's with us in it. Kind of like the way the three friends of Daniel, when they were actually in the furnace, some king observed a fourth in there with them and wanted to know who got in there I didn't know about. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. You're with me where? In the valley of the shadow of death. Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. You realize that in your hardest moment, you could be comforted in it? You realize in your most suffering moment, God could be a comfort to you in it, even though the suffering continues? The example of Abel. Abel was going about his business, living in the way of the Lord before the Bible told us about the way of the Lord. That doesn't come till 1819. He was living the way of the Lord. He offered a sacrifice to God in a way God was well pleased with him and not pleased with his brother, Cain. Cain. And then Cain saw fit to murder his brother. He was busy living a right life and something random happened. One of God's creatures with a free will, Cain, rose up and killed his own brother. Understand that one of the greatest understandings that we'll probably get to next sermon is that all of the hardship and trouble and pain and suffering and chaos in the world is there by God's design. He doesn't create pain and suffering, but it's there by the chaos is there by God's design because humanity arrives or achieves to its best when it has to really cry out to God in these situations. And these things can happen randomly to anyone. God was not sleeping when when Cain killed Abel. God did not kill Abel. God is not responsible for Abel's death. Cain is under God's sovereignty. And if you want to see how all that's true, look at Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was doing the right thing, doing the just thing before God, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel is still speaking, and he's dead. And that's the record he gets. Don't just remember that Cain killed Abel. Remember, Abel is still speaking. We sometimes miss the most important statements in the text. And how about our own Karen Bass? who my eye just happened to catch. Do you remember? She was in that event with the machete in Columbus. Do you remember that? And then she testified that Shabbat morning. Do you remember that? Hours later, she was here testifying, and the first thing she said to us, you know what? I see you're all excited that I'm here, but even if I wasn't here and I got killed in the incident, I'd expect you to be worshiping like you just were. Did you hear that? I remember that that riveted my being that morning, thinking, Wow, there's a person whose trust in God could go all the way. What's the ultimate outcome of holistic, healthy lament? Anybody read Hebrew? Anybody can read this fancy, situated word? One of my favorite artists in the world, Michel d'Anastasio, out of France, who, who was doing work on his own heritage, found out his heritage was Jewish, 
left the island he was on, Malta, went to Israel, saw the Hebrew language and went, I must do that the rest of my life. He's like the leading calligraphist in the world of Hebrew. This is shalom. What is shalom? Wholeness, completeness, soundness, sufficiency, satisfaction, harmony, and peace. Imagine being able to have shalom. Brian himself stated that when he left our conversation, somehow he was angry with God, still in the same condition, but had some shalom. It was like hard to, it's confounding, isn't it? Yeah, and that's how powerful God is while we're still in the four things, hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain. We have to take these breaks, right? These pauses. We don't even know what this word means in Hebrew. Selah. Maybe we should pray here, right? That all of us in our hardship, trouble, pain, and suffering would really know the practice of crying out to God to have shalom so that when we go to minister to others in these situations, we have it to give away. And, and let's just make sure we're clear on one thing here. Make sure that your trust is in God, that your faith is in God. Make sure you're not one of those persons whose faith is in faith. Because then when you don't get the answer you want, you'll be angry with God. Because some of us will pray for healing and get healed, and other of us will pray for healing and die. And some of us will pray that we get out of a situation, and some of us will stay in it for a decade. So what about this sermon title? It comes in two parts, crying out to God and in the lament psalms. Part one or part A is crying out to God. What's the range of possibilities for crying out? Is this one of them? We do this kind of crying, right? And we need to do this kind of crying. When I finished my PM with Brian, I went to pray for him, but I couldn't pray. I bawled like a baby. Remember that woman that wrote that song? How about unabashedly bawling our eyes out? I will never forget when I heard that song for the first time and heard those lyrics. I pulled over and downloaded the song immediately. Why? That's so transparent. I unabashedly bawled my eyes out, and then I was able to pray for him. How about this kind of crying out? Do we do this kind? In fact, our own Janice makes number five. That face in number five, that's Janice. She makes that face. I've seen that. You ever cry out to God like this? Have you ever been in a situation where you have to cry out to God like this? This is totally acceptable. As Howard said last week, what Sam Nadler says is so true. God can take it. What's the range of emotions or perspectives? It ranges from silent exhaustion to despairing of life to beating one's chest to yelling to God. Remember the story of my Aunt Madeline that asked us to stay for dinner? And and I thought, we should really stay. It's not one of those polite asks. Let's stay. And we stayed. And dinner, you know, as soon as dinner was put on the table, like the plate went there, she goes, can we talk? And I thought, yeah, what? I'm angry with God. Why are you angry with God? At the way life turned out in our family, all these kids out of wedlock that we're raising as grandparents. And I thought, wow, let it rip. So she just went on and on. And then she said, is that okay? Yes. It's better to be transparent with God and real than to fake it until you never make it. Here, with no intention of creating a superficial meme, because I surely hate superficial memes, tell us how you really feel, Henry. If you cry out to the world, you will be distressed. If you cry out to yourself, you will be depressed. If you cry out to God and Messiah, he will be your rest. And it might be the only rest you get in an otherwise difficult situation. In the Lament Psalms, 
What lament is? Mourning, grieving, bewailing, bemoaning, bawling, deploring, complaining, venting, beating one's chest to God. That's what lament is. What lament is not? Grumbling and murmuring against God, like the wilderness generation, who are used throughout the entirety of the scriptures as an example of what not to be like, whether you're in the Tanakh or the New Covenant scriptures. What lament is also not? Lament is not a sign of weakness or a failure of trust. We usually say faith. Do you know that the better translation of all the forms of faith in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is trust? And it involves trustworthiness. And if it's faith, it involves faithfulness. Lament is not a sign of weakness or failure of trust, but rather an action of trust in healthy and covenant relationship that deepens and strengthens trust and results in authentic hope. Teresa Morgan has just written a book this thick. Now there's a long post. Teresa Morgan just wrote a book this thick. That's a long post. There's not a thing on Facebook that's a long post. We're living in a short century. What does lament require? Brutal honesty. Being honest about where you really are. Total transparency. God can see right through you. And unabashed audacity. Somebody in the mini course said, what in the world does unabashed audacity mean? Unembarrassed boldness. Very important verse, Hebrews 4.16. Uh, this is how it be understood contextually from its own language. Therefore, let us again and again, as often as needed, approach the throne of grace or hesed with boldness in order to receive mercy and find grace or hesed for timely help. There's a way to boldly go directly to God that was not available in the time of Genesis to Chronicles, and we should be using it. It can be used instantaneously. The minute you hear that bad news or something happens, you can immediately turn and start pouring it out to God. See, we have to, we have to, we have to rest. A lesson from Thanksgiving Psalm 62, not even a lament psalm. Who wrote it? For the choir director, according to Yeditun, a psalm of David. We're going to learn more about David and how he's associated with the whole book of Psalms. We'll learn things about David that'll blow our mind because he's not just the tough guy king that has that lion-like strength we need. He's also, just like the Isaiahic suffering servant, there's a Davidic suffering servant. We're going to do that next time. My, my soul, this word, nefesh, soul won't get it done. It's your whole being. My whole being waits in silence for God only, for from him is my rescue deliverance. He only is my rock and my rescue deliverance. He's my rock. When David says rock, he doesn't mean, you know, he doesn't mean this. He doesn't mean the, the one you put in the creek when you're casting your sins away. And he doesn't even mean the boulder on the front, front yard of some homes. He doesn't mean the big boulder. When David says you're my rock, do you know what he means? He's speaking of the rocks, of the caves he hid in when people were out to get him. He's your hiding place. He's like the rock cave that you can run into and hide in all of this hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain. I, excuse me, my stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? You get that? 
a leaning wall, a tottering fence, it's like one more thing and it would go over. The situation gets us to the place where a leaning wall or a fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. There's the word, Selah. My being, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, preservation, rescue, deliverance. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God, my rescue, deliverance, and my reputation rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him when? Notice it says at all times. Trust in him at all times. Why? He's trustworthy. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is lament, pouring out your heart before him. This is part of Teresa Morgan's work. If you know, we can do something where we explain her work, or you can read that book. But if you read that book, you will never be the same. And there's a biblical scholar who wrote a review of that book that told the whole world that book changes the understanding of faith and trust and, and shows that it can't be separated from faithfulness and trustworthiness. And it shows that if it's authentic, no matter what hits it, it's going to get stronger, not get weak. So anybody that says, oh, until this happened, I trust God, and thereafter... I lost my faith. I lost my trust. No, you never had authentic trust to begin with. Trust me. Stress, hardship, trouble, suffering, pain, grief, sorrow, affliction, distress, trial, tribulation, woe, adversity, difficulty, calamity, catastrophe, anguish, disease, illness, misfortune, ordeal, misery, plight, blight, fright, fear. Did I leave anyone out? Fill in the blank. Fill in the blanks. Do not cause a person or community who is in covenant relationship with God to lose their trust. They actually strengthen authentic trust. You can actually be reminded in your thanksgiving in the middle of your prayer to say, oh, wait a minute. My wife does it all the time. Wait a minute. In 1978, we remember you did this. Aha, you are trustworthy. We can all of a sudden play the in the mind, what do they call it now? Video. Is, is video too old for everyone now? God knows you can't keep a, the, the fourth dimensional thing going on up here. You can actually play the whole history of God's trustworthiness and thank him for it. And then you what? Soldier on only by his strength through what you're going through now. Things like fear, doubt, or skepticism which are a natural part of the process of growing trust, must be carefully handled in a shepherd-like manner. But the biblical goal is the development of a firm, unfailing trust until one reaches the coming fullness of the kingship of God on earth. The Olam Haba. Conclusion regarding this kind of trust? It's only really attainable in Messiah and full participation in his messianic community where the healthy actions of lament and praise are normal, on a daily basis. At the risk of you thinking I support superficial memes, I'm going to say it again. If you cry out to the world, you will be distressed. If you cry out to yourself, you will be depressed. But if you cry out to God and Messiah, they will be your rest. So we'll segue backwards. A few words about the Psalms themselves. This is Mark Chagall's David and his harp. That's the word Psalms in Hebrew, Greek, and in the Torah. 
and the prophets. God reaches out to humanity. The initiative is his. The message is his. He communicates, we receive. Our God-given free will allows us to be receptive, to be accepting, to turn a deaf ear, to reject. But in the Psalms, and this is the work of the famous Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna, Nahum Sarna. In the Psalms, human beings reach out to God. The initiative is human. The language is human. We make an effort to communicate. He receives. He chooses to respond or not according to his inscrutable wisdom. You can't trace it out. You can't figure it out. He gives his assent or he withholds it. Brian said to me that night, he was so forceful. God hasn't answered me. What do you do with that? So you pray for him. But isn't it interesting at the end of the conversation, God was present to him? So God didn't answer him the way he thought, but God did answer him. What are the lament psalms? Another type of poem is one that gives voice to lamentation, either by the community or by an individual. We're going to look at the individual psalm of David's repentance, and we're going to find out why is David called a man after God's own heart. And you know what we'll mostly learn there? That we remember David's sin, and that's all we do. David is famous to us for his big sin. But why does God call him a man after his own heart? Because God remembers him for something else. And we're going to see that in next week's sermon. It'll blow your mind because it ties directly to the Shema and doing something with your whole being, wholeheartedness. National lament would be occasioned either by the threat of war or by such natural disasters as drought and failure of crops. Typically in such a psalm, the people either protest their innocence or acknowledge their former sins, asserting at the same time that God's wrath is justified. At such a time of what? Dire straits. God's compassion and justice are also implored by the people begging him to punish their enemy and expressing their what? Trust that God will keep faith with those loyal to him. When the lament is by an individual, it becomes an outpouring of the psalmist's deepest heartfelt feelings. Such psalms are unparalleled as expressions of personal prayer, where the psalmist conveys the close, the close bond they have with God. You're going to need a close bond with God to get through this 21st century. There is a mood of desperation that pervades the lament, where the author finds him or herself to be in mental anguish, as well as in physical suffering that brings them near the portals of death. At other times, their distress stems from the taunts of their enemies who challenge their faith or threaten them with violence. Despite one's suffering, the psalmist feels what? Confident that God will hear their outcry and deliver them, no matter what form of deliverance that ultimately is. How many lament psalms are there? About one-third, approximately 50 of those psalms are lament psalms. Where are they in the psalms? In the five books of psalms, where are they? The psalms are split into five books, most likely because of the five books of Torah. And this is how they break out. Psalms 1 through 41, book 1. Psalms 42 through 72, book 2. Psalms 73 through 89, book 3. Psalms 90 through 106, book 4. Psalms 107 through 150, book 5. Notice the structure of the Psalms we said would betray that the road to praise is paved with lament. 
Many of the lament psalms are in book one, Psalms 1 through 41. And most of the praise psalms are in 107 through 150, the end. So the front of the psalms are stacked with lament and the end of the psalms are stacked with praise, which proves that structure alone tells us that the road to praise is paved with lament. We close with the words of Gregory Mobley, who wrote a book called The Return of the Chaos Monsters and Other Backstories of the Bible. This citation is nothing short of sheer genius. And it does justice to God, and it does justice to the scriptures, and it does justice to our lives. So hear this full citation in a few parts. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, ends in a crescendo of praise. Like that symbol. Is Cliff here? Yeah, did you see him do this today? Except he saw me drop my sticks. He held his. That was a crescendo. The book of Psalms ends in a crescendo of praise. There is something in this crescendo of praise that at first glance seems false, hyped, over the top, overcompensating. But its sounding brass and clanging cymbals are not merely hollow musical dramatics because you cannot simply turn to the final psalms of praise before you get to them You must live through the hundred plus that precede the final jubilations. You receive the prize of praise only after the petition and pain of the previous psalms. The praise of Psalm 150 is the delight and joy of those acquainted with grief. In autumnal, reflective, bittersweet joy and praise, A sober, clear-eyed, anything but naive, yes to the entire mess. Tell me that's not one of the most powerful things you've ever heard someone say. It's not naive. You've had your dependence on God, and it's a yes to the entire mess of messianic history. That is the human story in the Psalms. The petitions and laments of the Psalms are direct evidence of human dependence upon God. We need God. When the scriptures say, let your requests be made known, it's not an indication that the God who is sovereign is ignorant and unknowing. It's your chance to be transparent before him and go, I am not going to make it through this without you. Or I'm not going to make it through to death without you. But what does the crescendo of praise and thanksgiving suggest? Again, Mobley blows my mind. It's as if Psalm 22.3 is actually true. The Lord is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Picture the throne sitting on our praises. Without their praises, God's sovereignty is diminished, imperiled, and unrealized. Do you understand the power of this final point? If we as a congregation truly practice crying out to God in hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, 
we will come to know God and have what we need in the way of comfort to give away to others when they're going through those things, it will lead us eventually to praise. The other night, after a very hard thing, I told those in my household, I went to pray, but instead, a song burst out of my mouth I didn't even, I didn't plan on. I went to pray, and I was upset. And I went to pray upset. Instead, I said, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my being rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet song in your ear. And even I was like, what? God must have been like, I was like, yes, because I went to complain in prayer, and rightly so. But my crying turned to praise because the one that sows in tears reaps in joy, even in the situation if it keeps going. And then when we get to that praise, it's what God's sovereignty is communicated with. So it doesn't get diminished, imperiled, or unrealized by our lack of praise because we didn't cry out to God in lament. The road to praise is paved with lament. Let's pray. Avino Makeno, our Father, our King, we lay before you our lives as a congregation transparently with everything you know is going on in every household, every individual life, from physical illness all the way to death, to every hardship, suffering, pain that exists in the human condition. And we ask that you would make us those who have the art and the and the skill and the practice of crying out to you in those situations, of knowing you, of gaining comfort to the extent possible in those situations, and being able to pour that out like an oily balm in the sore pains of others who are going through it. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.